Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. I'm also going to read after that Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Matthew 2, 1 through 6. Allow me to read this passage. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His going forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Then we see 700 years later this is fulfilled in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi, from the east, arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Let's bow together in prayer. Dear Lord, we are so thankful for Christmas. Lord, without Christmas there would never be Easter. Without the coming of your Son, there would never be a Savior. Lord, we're so thankful that we celebrate this coming. And Lord, I pray that today that you will touch our hearts through your Word. Guide us to leave this place to be filled with the spirit of love and caring about the needs of others. And Lord, the message of salvation. Lord, what a wonderful, powerful message it is here at Christmas. May we be found faithful in sharing it with those who need it most. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we continue our Christmas season by going through this series of dealing with some messages from our favorite Christmas carols. That may be a little bit of an unusual way to deal with a, a Christmas season, but that's where God led me this time. And so today we'll be dealing with the hymn, Oh Little Town of Bethlehem. We just sang it. If you want to open up your hymnals back to that, I think it was 85, is that correct? 86, okay, 86. If you'd like to look at that, because I'll actually be referring to it from time to time. Oh, Little Town of Bethlehem. Let me just give you a little bit of information about this little town of Bethlehem. It's located about five miles south of Jerusalem. It's actually a tad higher in elevation than the city of Jerusalem, and, and Jerusalem's way on up there. But it has a lot of rich history for such a small town. Uh, Jacob's wife, Rachel, when she gave birth to Benjamin, her last child, she died after childbirth, and Jacob buried her in Bethlehem. Then later on, we see another character, Ruth. Naomi and her husband were from Bethlehem. They left to go to Moab to find food. And there their uh, sons married daughters and both their sons and her husband passed away. And Naomi told Ruth and her other daughter-in-law just to stay and let their families take care of them. But Ruth insisted that she would return with her to Bethlehem. There she met a man named Boaz and they married and they became a part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. 
Then another important character, Samuel, came along. God instructed Samuel to go and anoint a king that would replace Saul one day. And so he led him to this little city town of Bethlehem, to the family of Jesse. He went through all the sons, thinking that this one surely had to be him, ready to anoint him. But God said no. And so ran out of sons. So he asked Jesse, are these all of your sons? Jesse said, no, I have one more. He's out tending the sheep. So he said, bring him in. And when he saw him, he knew this was God's anointed. And he anointed him to be king of Israel. Little bitty town. Some mighty things happened there. And so we look and we see that just because God put in a heart of an ungodly ruler to, to do a census, to send everybody back to their hometown to be taxed and to be numbered, only because of that did Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem because they were both of the lineage of David and according to the rules you had to go back to your homeland to be taxed. And so that's the only reason why they were, had to go back to Bethlehem. Well, how did they get there? The Bible really does not say. More than likely, they probably used a donkey, not necessarily for Mary to ride on all the way, but more likely to, to carry supplies and maybe to give Mary a rest from time to time. The trip was about 90 miles. There was a little bit shorter trip, but it went straight through the heart of Samaria, which was kind of a place that most Jews did not want to go through. So most Jews went around Samaria. They went east first over to the Jordan River, followed the Jordan River Valley uh, south, and then when they got somewhat parallel to Jerusalem, then they started the steep climb, about 3,500 feet in elevation, the last 16 miles up to Jerusalem and then to Bethlehem. Now, how long did that take? Well, if you were trying to do it in a hurry, you could probably do it in about five days. More than likely, Mary and Joseph probably took a week or more. Can you imagine a lady great with child making that kind of a journey? Not, a, not an easy journey, but they got there only because of an official decree and only because they were of the lineage of David and had to go back to Bethlehem. God did all that to fulfill a prophecy that was written 700 years earlier. Can you imagine that? God knew all this would take place in his timing. He told through, Mal through Micah 700 years before the fact that this would take place, that out of this little town of Bethlehem would come one, listen to what the last part says, from the days of eternity. This was not a normal man. This was a man who has always been the days of eternity. Jesus has always existed. So now we look at this little song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. I'll give you just a little bit of background history about that. And it was written in 1868 by a man named Brooks, uh, Phillips Brooks. He's pastor of the Holy Trinity Church in Philadelphia. But you got back up about three years. Three years before that, he went to the Holy Land during Christmas. And he was able to worship on Christmas Eve at the Church of the Nativity, which they claim is built on the place where Jesus was born. And he was deeply moved 
by the worship experience there. He came back home, continued his ministry, but it was three years later. God impressed on his heart that the children needed a song to sing for Christmas, for their Christmas program. And that evening, God gave him these words. In one evening, he wrote, O little town of Bethlehem. But he had a problem. He was not a musician. He wrote the lyrics, but he didn't know how to put music to it. So he handed the lyrics to his organist. His name was Louis Redner. And Louis had the task of trying to come up with the music to these lyrics in a very short period of time. In the middle of the night, he woke up with this tune in his head and put the music to these lyrics just in time to teach it to the children for their Christmas program. So that's how we have this song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Allow me to read it to you. Again, reading it sometimes is a little bit more powerful, I think, than trying to sing it. And you probably don't want me to try to sing it, so. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above a deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. For Christ is born of Mary and gathered all above. While mortals sleep, the angels keep their watch of wandering love. O morning stars, together proclaim the holy birth and praise the scene to God the King and peace to men on earth. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear him co his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. O come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. So let's kind of break this down. Let's look at the first stanza. What we see here is that Jesus meets our greatest needs. After describing the serenity of that night, a quiet time in the little town of Bethlehem, the evening came and God shared his greatest gift to mankind through the birth of his son Jesus. It says that it was the darkness of night. I think this probably represents the darkness of mankind and his sinfulness shown an everlasting light. Everlasting, remember that word, everlasting, eternal light. Who is this light? Well, he's Jesus. John chapter 8, verse 12 says, Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. See, Jesus came to answer the greatest questions of mankind. How do we deal with our future? How do we deal with the hopes of what is yet to come? And how do we deal with the fears that we have? See, we all somewhat manage day by day, but for many people, they have a tremendous fear of what tomorrow's going to bring. And also death. They don't know how to handle death because they think that death is the end. 
and there's nothing left after that. And so many people have the hopes that maybe tomorrow will be better than today. Maybe the, the trials and the tribulations and the conflicts that I'm going through today will get better. But it's all wishful thinking. They don't have any true peace in their hearts. And so the hope and the fears of mankind have been present throughout the known world from the days of Adam and Eve until the days of Revelation. Man does not know how to handle life, especially the future, especially death. Has this wishful thinking that things hopefully will get better and a fear that they may not. But Jesus comes. He is our peace. He is our hope. It says that Jesus, the everlasting life, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. So we look and we see that Jesus is the answer to our hopes and fears. He is the way, he is the truth, and he is the light, and he shines the light upon our past so that we know how to face tomorrow. We may not know what tomorrow is going to bring, but we do know that our Lord, through his Holy Spirit, will be with us, and he will guide us, and he will give us peace in whatever it is that we face. He never promises that he'll take away the trials, the tribulations, the suffering. Never promises that. But he does promise that he will be there with us. That he will comfort us, strengthen us, and guide us through them. Then we look at the second stanza. And it really describes the angels celebrating his coming. Well, we dealt with Hark the Herald Angels Sing last week, so I won't get back into that too much. But while mankind slept, Mary gave birth to the very Son of God, Jesus the Christ, and the angels gathered together. They gathered with a bunch of shepherds because they were still awake, out in their fields keeping watch over their flock by night. God sent these special messengers as heralds, as I shared last week, to share the greatest news that mankind would ever hear. They proclaimed the holy birth. The holy birth. Not, they didn't just proclaim a birth, but they proclaimed the holy birth. And there's only been one, and that's Jesus. Jesus, born of a virgin, of the Holy Spirit, is God in the flesh. And so we see that Jesus is the gift that they sang about. The one who would come to save mankind from their sins. And they sang praises to God the King. Folks, wouldn't you like to have been out in that field that night to hear the angels sing this proclamation that Jesus had been born? But we weren't there, but we have a record of it. And what we do know is that we, like the angels, need to sing praises to God the King because he has given us the greatest gift of all mankind, his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. They proclaim that this gift of God was the only source of peace on earth. Think about that for just a minute. Mankind has been seeking for peace for all mankind. There have always been wars and conflicts since recorded history. There's never been a time where there has not been some type of war, conflict, skirmish. And that's just between nations and nations, even civil wars within nations. But on top of that, there's also the conflicts that we go through in life. And so man is always wanting peace. 
They want the conflicts to go away. Right now, you hear a lot of people praying for the peace in the Middle East with Israel uh, at war with their neighbors. But there's not going to be any true peace on earth physically until Jesus comes again. Then he will defeat Satan and all his demonic forces and he will reign with peace on earth. So what are the angels saying here? Peace on earth. Well, it's peace even in the midst of conflicts. It's peace even in the midst of war and tribulation and trials. It is knowing that no matter what we're facing, Jesus is with us and he is our peace. To know that he is guiding us, that he is the answer to all of our needs, that he loves us and he will never leave us nor forsake us. The simple fact is only Jesus can be our peace. Now, you may be struggling with peace in your life right now. There may be something going on in your life. Well, here's a real simple formula. Pray about it. Say, God, I'm not in control. I have really little that I could possibly do to affect the outcome of what's going on. If there is something that you do want me to do, then guide me to do it. Otherwise, I surrender to you and leave it in your hands. When you do that, God can give you peace. Because you're not in control anymore. God is. And that's the peace that passes all understanding. Then we look at the third stanza. How Jesus enters a heart. Wouldn't it be great if Jesus just had a, the ability to just kind of implant a chip or, or something into us and we automatically became a child of God and we automatically became sinless and we were this perfect being? That doesn't happen. In our world today, the large majority of people think that they can earn their way to heaven, that they can be good enough, they can do enough good deeds to, to become a child of God, but that's not how it works. Other than the shepherds hearing that chorus of the angels singing, mankind really knew very little about what took place that night. The shepherds did come into Bethlehem, and they shared with all around them uh, what they had heard out in the fields by the angels, and it amazed those who heard it. Again, you're in this little town of Bethlehem. What, what impact does that have? But this gift that was given that night in Bethlehem can only be received in the heart. God's not going to come along with a bullhorn and shout it out. He's not going to tell us that you must listen to what he has to say. We have to receive it with humble hearts, open hearts, humble spirits. Why is that? Because pride is one of the greatest things that hinders people from receiving God's gift of salvation. So much pride in who they are and what they are and their status in life and what they can do by their own means that they feel like there's really no need for one to save them, to be their Lord and Master and King. They are their own Lord. And so it's very difficult for the prideful to receive salvation. Instead of shouting it, this little hymn says, No ear may hear his coming. We don't hear like a bullhorn. It's not, it's not being blasted into us. Instead, God does something very unique. 
He takes his word as his book proclaimed. Then he takes his Holy Spirit and he begins to draw the heart to himself. It's a heart issue. If man is too prideful, then the pride is keeping his heart from hearing God's calling. But God is calling individually, uniquely, with a still small voice, through his word and through his Holy Spirit. So man cannot save himself. He must humble himself first. Admit that he's a sinner in need of salvation, and he knows that he cannot save himself, but instead what he does, he realizes that God has provided the way of salvation and eternal life, and he opens up his heart to Jesus to be his Lord and Savior. Then what did this author say? Then Jesus Christ will gladly enter in. Where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. The meek soul, the soul that has admitted their sinfulness, confessed their sins before Almighty God, repented of their sins, and understood that they cannot save themselves, but that God has provided a Savior. And so they surrender their hearts and their lives to Jesus as Savior and Lord. And by that simple act of humility, Jesus enters in. He makes his home in us. He abides in us. We know that through his Holy Spirit. He will enter in and transform us so that we can become children of God. That's the message of Christmas. Jesus has come to enter into our hearts and lives to be our Lord, our Savior, our Master, our King, and we need to open our hearts so that he can enter in. Then we look at this fourth stanza. It's really actually a prayer of salvation. Let me just read it. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend on up to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell, O oh, come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. What a beautiful prayer. And it's a powerful prayer of salvation. We see the Holy Spirit at work sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and drawing man to salvation. And his presence is recognized uh, in our need for repentance and forgiveness of our sin. And basically what he is saying is, when we repent... Here's what Jesus does. He casts out our sin and he enters in. Only Jesus has the power to erase our sin. When we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. That's his promise to us. So when we confess, he casts out our sins. He casts it as far as the east is from the west. In other words, there's no way it's coming back. That's only what God can do. We cannot do anything in our own strength to do that. So he casts out our sins, and then he enters in. He doesn't leave a void. See, when he casts out the sin, it leaves a void in our hearts and our lives. And if we don't fill that void with something else, guess what? The sin comes right back. Scripture tells a story of a man who was cast out the demons from he was cleansed, but he didn't fill his heart back 
with the one who saved him. And so soon after, he had more demons possessing him than he did before. That's what happens if we just simply say, Lord, forgive me my sins, and then we don't let him be Lord of our lives. He wants to not only cast out our sins, but he wants to enter in. He wants to be our Lord, our Savior, personal, intimate relationship with us. And it says, and born in us that day. That's the picture of the second birth, being born again. Jesus comes and gives us a second birth. Instead of being born once and dying twice, we're born twice and die once. Think about that. Without Christ, you're born once physically, you die once physically, and then you die again spiritually. With Christ, you're born once physically, you're born twice spiritually, but you only die once physically. There is no second death, only eternal life. And he has come to give us life. Oh, come to us. Look at this last part. Oh, come to us. Abide with us. Our Lord Emmanuel. The first part is an invitation. Lord, come to us. We need you desperately. Our world around us is in desperate need of you. I need you too. We as Christians need to surrender anew, open our hearts anew each and every day because we allow little things to interfere with our relationship with the Lord. We need to open our hearts anew every day. Come to us, Lord Jesus. But we also need to pray that prayer for the lost world around us. Lord, there's a lost world that needs you desperately. Come to us and then abide with us. As a child of God, I need you desperately to be the guiding force in all that I say and do, thinking and I desire. And may your Holy Spirit be that guiding force dwelling in me, abiding in me as I abide in you. And so as we see we're praying for him to come to us, to abide with us, and then we claim him as our Lord Emmanuel. Our Lord Emmanuel. All the way back in Isaiah, he shared about Emmanuel, God with us. Then we also see it in our gospel that Jesus comes as Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus walked on the face of this earth for some 30-something years. He did some mighty wonderful things. But it's not his ministry to others. It's what he did on a cross where he saved us from our sins. And we know that he came so that he could abide in us and be our Lord, Emmanuel, God with us. I even like to add a little twist to that. Jesus came as God with us. Then he left. He ascended back into heaven. But as he was leaving, he said, I must go so that the Comforter can come. And then the Scriptures tell us that that Comforter is the Holy Spirit. And he not only is with us, but dwells in us. So now he is God in us, Emmanuel. I'd like for you to think about something. Just think about how amazing God works throughout history. 700 years before the fact, he used a prophet named Micah. 
And through Micah, he shared this simple passage of Scripture. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be caught among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His going forth are from long ago. That was 700 years before that. He is from the days of eternity. He has always existed. 700 years later, God put it in the heart of an ungodly ruler to conduct a census that forced Mary and Joseph, being of the house and lineage of David, to return to Bethlehem, even in Mary's condition. There she fulfilled prophecy by giving birth to the Son of God so that we see uh, the scribes and the, fair, uh, and the chief priests saying, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judea, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. 700 years, God kept his promise. Well, let's put this a little bit more in modern day. 1865, a pastor, privileged to go to the Holy Land. He worships at the Church of the Nativity on Christmas Eve, and his heart was deeply moved. You would think immediately he would come up with this song, wouldn't you? Three years later, God put it on his heart to write this song. And he gave him a accompanist through his organist to put the music to it so that little children could sing this song for a Christmas program. How about us? What has God done in our past that may be the seed for something that needs to happen now? This happened three years earlier in his life. Three years later, the seed was there, and it sprouted forth fruit. What has God done in your heart, in your life, even in the distant past, or maybe even last week or three years ago, that he's using as a seed to do something great through us? I don't have the answer for you. I know there's been times in my life where I've seen God at work, where I did not see immediate things happening, but God proved himself. Years later, he showed me the results. What's God doing in your heart and life today? What seed has he planted, however far back in the past, that he's ready to sprout forth some fruit? That's what we need to pray about today. Excuse me. We need to pray that God will open our hearts today so that whatever he's already implanted in our hearts, his love, his goodness, his mercy, his grace, his compassion for the lost world around us, that we'll be found faithful to do whatever it is that God's preparing us to do. Let's bow together. Dear Lord, we come to you realizing that you're a God that keeps his promises. 700 years before the fact, you shared a message to a prophet. 
that out of this little town of Bethlehem will come the Savior of the world from time of eternity past. 700 years later, you put it into the heart of an ungodly ruler to set forth everything in motion for Mary and Joseph to go to Bethlehem to give birth to the Son of God. Lord, you used a, a pastor who was deeply moved by an experience in the Holy Land. And then years later, you used that experience to bring forth a beautiful Christmas carol. Lord, you've worked in our own hearts in ways that we may not even be thinking about right now. Lord, I pray that you will make yourself known anew. Show us how we can use the things from our past for your glory today. May we be found faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.